All right, this is the sleepy session. Everybody's got their food. Everybody's tired. We're going to try our best to stay awake and not have it be the sleepy session. Uh, something interesting happened earlier when Steve was talking. I saw underneath this podium there was a fly walking around, and I, it was bugging me. I was sitting right there, and I could see the fly going around, and, and it never flew away. Then later, Tom, who's doing sound, said to me, he goes, Pat, look at this. So this microphone got, got set down, and he was holding up this microphone like this. And there was a spider dangling from the microphone. I thought it was a Halloween gimmick, but it wasn't. And wouldn't it have been good and providential since Steve Nichols wrote his, did his doctoral dissertation on Jonathan Edwards if he could have busted into an Edwards sermon because the spider dangling over the precipices of hell. Anyway, it didn't work out, but it sure would have been good. <laughs> uh, a couple of things uh, to mention. Um, trust you've had a good time and a good lunch. Thank you to those of you who worked hard serving the rest of us. Um, it's awesome. Of course, they're probably all in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> but we feel good about it. Anyway, um, we do have a leadership session for uh, church leaders, pastors, their spouses, and that kind of thing. Following this, um, I'm not even sure what time that's going to be. I think it's at 2.30, but basically it's after this session. Steve is also preaching here tomorrow, and uh, audio will be online probably minutes after he's done preaching, so you can access that even if you're not a part of Omaha Bible Church. Final announcement for me to make would be about books. Um, this book right here called The Reformation uh, would be a great summary book if you're thinking, I want to read more about what I've been learning about today. Um, this little helpful book called The Reformation, How a Monk and a Mallet Changed the World uh, is in the bookstore. I love this book. I love to give this book away just because it's so accessible. And then the children's book, which is, like I said, my favorite book of all, my kids kind of like it too, would be the Church History ABC book right here. And uh, if you don't have kids, just buy it anyway, thinking you'll give it to a kid someday. Wink. Wink. <laughs> you might learn church history. There is Luther right there with a lute. If in case you want to see uh, what a lute looked like. L is for lollipop, lute, and Martin Luther, uh, larger-than-life reformer. Now, there's a little adult humor in here, too. At the bottom, it says, take one down, pass it around, 95 thesis on the church door. So we all know that Steve is Presbyterian and not Baptist. <laughs> so with that said, I like Steve Nichols even more, but <laughs> let's have him come and do the last session and uh, enjoy that. Thanks. Well, you know that I am a Presbyterian and not a Lutheran. Because if I was a true Lutheran, I would have taken the lute out of his hand and I would have put a stein in his hand. <clears throat> but it is, after all, a kid's book, so we must be sensitive. Uh, I know you are not my undergraduate students, because if you were my undergraduate students, you would be saying to me right now, can we have class outside? It is beautiful out there. I also know that it is the sleepy time, afternoon hour. I will try to stay awake. I will covenant with you right now that I will try to stay awake. And I trust that perhaps something will be said that will keep you awake as well. But I understand the day wears long. And 
you've been a very patient and gracious group, and I appreciate that very much. In fact, while I think about it, let me say thank you to Pat and your staff, the pastoral staff here, for making me so welcome in this great place of Omaha. And also thank you to the wonderful staff that put together that lunch that was delightful and the sound crew, and also to you folks for being such a gracious audience. It takes two to tango, and uh, it's always delightful for me to have a kind and gracious and receptive congregation to speak with, and so I appreciate your encouragement, and uh, you are a wonderful group of people to spend time with, so thank you for all that. We're talking about Scripture and salvation And we are going to move now to talk about our third S in this alliterated outline of sanctification. And for this, we are going to visit yet another German city. In fact, we're going to visit two more German cities. We've been at uh, Constance, we've been at Worms, we've been at Wittenberg. Now we're going to go to Heidelberg, and we're going to go to Flossenburg. I mentioned this last time with Luther and his family, that you can sort of gauge the depth, or gauge a person's life by the impact they have on the people around them. You can also gauge what a person is about by looking at their legacy downstream. And there are two places, two stops in this downstream legacy from Luther that are direct influences by Luther that I would like to look at with you. And one of them is the city of Heidelberg, And what came there at the city of Heidelberg of the Heidelberg Catechism? So we're going to look at the Heidelberg Catechism and what light that legacy sheds back on Luther. The other place is Flossenburg. Now, Flossenburg is down by the border, right up against the border of the Czech Republic, actually, down towards the south. And at Flossenburg was a site of one of the many concentration camps during World War II. And it was at Flossenburg that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran theologian and minister, was hanged. Hanged literally days, about eight days before Flossenburg was liberated by the Allied forces. So we're going to look at Luther's legacy at Heidelberg and the Heidelberg Catechism and the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And from that, see what we can learn about Luther himself, and then much more importantly, what we can learn about how we can be disciples of Christ in the place in which he put us, be it Omaha or Lincoln or other surrounding areas or even Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So first, Heidelberg. I mentioned the Heidelberg Disputation in 1518. And it was there at the Heidelberg Disputation that Luther argued for this idea of a theology of the cross. In fact, he says, one who uh, is a theologian must be a theologian of the cross. That it is not through human effort, human achievement that we come to Christ, but through the cross. Well, it worked. It was a very successful time. In fact, Uh, there's a conference going on this weekend in the city of Heidelberg celebrating the Heidelberg Disputation with some names you might recognize. Derek Thomas, 
who's associated with the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals and has a Welsh accent. And anyone with an accent is just profound. <laughs> I had uh, Sinclair Ferguson uh, as a professor at Westminster Seminary. And Ferguson is Scottish, has this great Scottish brogue. And Ferguson could read the phone book in class, and I would hang on. Every- I remember the first time I heard him speak at a conference. It was at 10th Presbyterian Church, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. And Ferguson stood up in the pulpit, and he's Scottish, no opening joke, no nothing. It's right to business. It's the text in the sermon. And so he said, open your Bible. I won't even try to imitate it with his Scottish. Open your Bible and turn with me to whatever text. And I remember thinking to myself, wow. <laughs> so profound. Then I thought, wait a minute. He didn't say anything. But this Heidelberg disputation was very successful. And the city became a deeply rooted and joined forces along with Wittenberg to be a force for change for the Reformation in Germany. And it too had a cathedral and it too had a university and it too had a Frederick, a different Frederick, who was also keen on his city being well-positioned and being a leader in the German Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation. Well, we need to fast forward a little bit. We bump into a man by the name of Zacharias Ursinus. And uh, Ursinus, who actually is in that alphabet book, and that's hard for kids. Echolampadius is hard, but Ursinus is just as hard. So we put a bear cap on him, just for kicks. Because Ursinus actually means bear, you know, Ursinus major. Zacharias Ursinus ended up at Heidelberg, but he was first a student at Wittenberg, at the University of Wittenberg. He got there shortly after Luther died, and so he was trained primarily by Luther's uh, uh, heir apparent, Philip Melanchthon. And after being trained by Philip Melanchthon, Ursinus traveled down to Geneva. And at Geneva, he studied under Calvin. What an incredible education. Think about that. Melanchthon and Luther and Wittenberg and Calvin at Geneva. And he was called to teach at Sapiens College, which means Wisdom College. I always thought that was an interesting name. We are Wisdom College. But Wisdom College at the, Heidelberg, at the University of Heidelberg. And there was also, he's primarily a theologian, and there was a biblical scholar there by the name of Caspar Olivianus. Now, we did not use that for the O in the alphabet book. But Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Olivianus were commissioned by Frederick to write a catechism for the city of Heidelberg. And they wrote to me one of the most beautiful documents of the Protestant Reformation, the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563. It's referred to, the first two questions, or the first question is referred to affectionately as simply Heidelberg 1. And it's in your outlines, in your notebook. After the outline, it's on the next page. And you see it there under readings with question 1 in the answer and question 2 in the answer. The catechism comes from 1563. The catechism is 129 questions long. And I'm going to read to you all 129 questions. 
to see if you can stay, see how committed you really are to celebrating the Reformation. See if you can stay awake. It has three parts. There's these two introductory questions. And then the, f- the rest, the 127 questions to follow, follows the threefold structure that comes in question two. It's a very different catechism from Luther's. Luther's catechism was set up around the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments, and the Love Commandment, or the Great Commandment. And in that, Luther saw the Lord's Prayer and the vitality of prayer for the Christian life, the practical living of the Christian life through those wonderful propositions of the Lord's Prayer. Those, those phrases of the Lord's Prayer are like gateways into living the Christian life. And then the Apostles' Creed. Again, gateways into Christian doctrine. And then ethics, how we live, following the Ten Commandments and the Love Commandment. So that's Luther's catechism. The next century, in the 1640s, we'll have Parliament convene the Westminster Assembly and gather the divines from across Great Britain and bring the the independents from around London and bring the Presbyterians down from Scotland and produce the Westminster Standards. And among them, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. A whole body of divinity, a systematic theology taught through a catechism with its wonderful first question, what is the chief end of man? With its delightful answer that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And then there's the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is different from both Luther and his catechism and from the catechism to come, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism essentially deals with the questions of life, with the life cycle that we live, our life as a sinner, our redemption, and the life that flows out of gratitude for the redemption of us. But I want to look at these first two questions with you. They get at what Luther was about. They get at what the gospel is about. And they get at what the gospel does for us. The first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Now, let's just pause here for a moment. There's a word in there that should strike you as very 21st century. When I think of the 16th century, I don't necessarily think of comfort. I think of great theology. And by the way, I looked at your bulletin and I saw that you have theology for breakfast. Not sure how that tastes, but you do. And I saw that it was at 6.30 and I thought Luther would be so proud of you. That not only are you talking about theology and eating, two things he loved to do, but it's early. He'd be so proud of you. So, God bless in your efforts. What a 21st century value. Comfort. I mean, look at our cars. We make our cars to be like our living room. So that we can float down the highway. God forbid we feel a bump in the road because of comfort. I've recently become gotten into running. Do you know how much gear is made available to runners 
so that they never feel any pain whatsoever. It's a sport that you're supposed to be in pain. No, running is the punishment that every other sport makes their players do. When football players can't figure out a play, they got to run. And when soccer players mess up, their coach makes them run. Running, we're not built to run. Running is punishment that we inflict on ourselves. And we pay money to enter races to feel pain. But we have gear so that we don't feel any pain. Cushion, grip, sandals after you run. Comfort is a remarkably 21st century value. But I would argue that comfort is actually a perennial value. And what's so remarkable is not so much the question, although I do think that's remarkable for its time. What's remarkable is the answer. That's what's remarkable. Think through in your mind how people would answer that question. What's your comfort in life and in death? Family. Family is my security, my comfort. And family members disappoint us. Family members turn on each other. Family bonds sometimes dissolve. Some would say, my work. I take comfort and security in my work. And the security that my work brings me financially. And we've all just lived through the last four or five years. And all of those things are shaky. The givens of retirement accounts. The givens of the stability of the equity of my home. The given that my job will be there. Are all question marks in what we call the new normal of the new economic realities. Comfort and security in my talents. Comfort and security in... Just fill in the blanks. Comfort and security in entertainment. We are a culture that 20 years ago, Neil Postman said we were amusing ourselves to death. 20 years ago, he said that. How much more has entertainment become an overriding cultural value for us? Always being numbed, always being distracted, always seeking pleasure to meet some need of comfort and security. And here's what Heidelberg says. One word, the gospel. What is your only comfort in life and death? The gospel. That's the answer. But these are theologians. Theologians don't speak concisely. If it can be said in a word, it can be said in 525 pages. <laughs> that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. There's a theological definition of propitiation. 
that Christ in his death has fully satisfied for all my sins. That's a theological definition of the word propitiation. And delivered me from all the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. This is one of our favorite texts as evangelicals, Romans 8. All things work together for good to them that love God. You just got a Porsche and you just ran it off a cliff. Do they have cliffs here in Omaha? You ran it into a lake. You just got a Porsche and you ran it into a lake. And what does your Christian friend say to you? All things work together for good. We're all guilty of it from one time or another, going up to somebody who's dealing with something and like a little magic pixie dust, we sprinkle over their lives. All things work together for good. The reality is it's true. The reality is it's true. In light of what's ultimate, in light of what's matter, what matters, all things are subservient to my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me. There's the security. There's the comfort comes through the doctrine of assurance. He assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. We go right from the gospel to our response. That out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us, we live for him. Now the second question is also remarkable in what it asks. How many things are necessary for you to know? that you, enjoying this comfort, may live and die happy. How 21st century is that? Not only are we about comfort, but we're certainly about happiness. How American is that? We have inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And think this through. How do people answer that question? How do people answer the question, what do I need to be happy? And think of the answers they give that are just ludicrous, that don't deliver on what they promise. And here's the answer. Three. Three things you have to know. That enjoying the comfort of the gospel, you may live and die happy. First, how great my sins and miseries are. Now, stop right there. This is clearly a reformed document. The subject is happiness, and the answer is be miserable. I had a church history professor at seminary who used to ask the question out loud, why is it that the reformed faith does so well in cold climates? Let that sink in a little bit. Miami. Miami. Not a hotbed of Calvinism. (laughs) What fun is it being reformed if you can't be miserable? I mean, that's what, that's part of it. We're, We're miserable people. 
But here's why. Because we are. You know what Augustine's favorite description of humanity is Adam's sinful lump. That's what he called humanity. And you know where it comes from? It comes from Romans 9. And the potter in the clay. And we are, in our humanity, a sinful lump. And all of the things that we think are bring us happiness are distractions from our true state. Our inability to come to grips with who we truly are, miserable and wretched creatures in our sinfulness. And we camouflage that and we mask that and we avoid coming to grips with that. But we will never be fulfilled We will never be what God intended us to be in relationship with him until we come to grips with our need for him and our sinful, miserable condition. It is absolutely necessary for our happiness for us to recognize who we are and our sinfulness. How great my sin and misery is tell you how great it is. It is measured by the solution. Our sin and misery, the greatness of our sin and misery is measured by the solution to our sin and misery. And it took the separation of the eternal triune Godhead and the death of the only begotten Son on the cross as the solution to my sin problem. Second thing. So first we come to grips with our misery of humanity, our sinfulness and what that means. And then secondly, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And there's the gospel. There's salvation. There's the solution. So we're right back to the gospel. And as you look at the Heidelberg Catechism and as you read the next 127 questions, this is how it unfolds. So we deal with our sinfulness. And then we move on from our sinfulness and our humanity. We start as created and then we're fallen. And then we move on to redemption. And that's the Heidelberg Catechism, parts one and two. But then notice part three. The third answer to happiness is this. How I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. And so the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism is the gratitude of humanity for the salvation that Christ has done for us. Now I put some biblical texts there on the opposing page. And as you look at these texts, you can see where Ursinus and Olivianus are getting their ideas from. And the first text, of course, is Matthew chapter 10, and this they directly quote. These worthless sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them falls apart from the will of God in heaven absolute sovereignty over his creation. And it's not some abstract fatalism, determinism, sovereignty. And what is at the heart of sovereignty? Is the goodness of God. At the heart of God's sovereignty is his goodness. 
He is not just absolutely sovereign. He is, in a word that I think a recent theologian, Alistair McGrath, I think McGrath has coined this term, and I love this term, he is omnibenevolent. He is all good. He is all good. This is the God who knows us, who knows even the hairs of our head. And the response to that is, fear not. Verse 31. Based on this truth, fear not. That's comfort. That's security. That's not anxiety. That's not that anxious gnawing that something's not right. That's not that restlessness. You are of more value than many sparrows. And then we have First Peter in chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. The wonderful description of the gospel. Here in verse 4, look at this. It's an inheritance that is imperishable. It will not perish. It is undefiled. And it is unfading. Those are, it's like the best product of all time. You know, we talk about clothes that are color fast. We'll wash them enough. They'll fade eventually. We talk that something's uh, imperishable. Now, this will take you way back. This was when I was a kid. Remember the old Samsonite commercials? And, they, and you'd send your luggage, you know, on the carousel at the, at the airport, and it goes behind the curtain, and back there behind the curtain, there's a gorilla jumping up and down on the luggage. But don't worry, it's a Samsonite. It's indestructible. I remember vividly, I was at the Detroit airport layover for like six hours, and I was sitting in this uh, uh, little restaurant there against the window, and I was watching, and, and a, a little truck runs by with all the luggage on the back and a little red suitcase. Maybe it was a corn husker suitcase. <laughs> a little red suitcase bounces off this thing, and it's lying there on the floor. And lo and behold, here comes a fuel tank. Didn't see it at all. <laughs> right over this thing. I just so wish I had an iPhone or a picture on my camera that I could just capture this. But this is the gospel. Imperishable. Pure. Undefiled. And it will never fade. Pristine. Pristine. And it's locked up. Stored. Guarded. By God's very power. And it's for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the gospel. And again, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. What is our only comfort in life and death? Yes, a life that can be full of trials. A life that can be full of suffering. A life that can have its twists and turns. A life that cannot go the route we hoped it to go. Even if now you're grieved by various trials, remember, remember this. Your inheritance is locked up in heaven waiting for you. Comfort in the gospel. And then we go down to Galatians chapter 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't just come to Christ by faith. And then we move on from there. We come to Christ by faith. And this new life that we live, we live by faith.
a little bit later in Galatians chapter 4, Paul's going to say, you foolish Galatians. You foolish Galatians. Now, Jesus said, don't call anybody a fool. We teach our kids that all the time. Don't say stupid. Don't say fool. Jesus wouldn't like that. Paul's calling them fools. To drive home his point. Who has bewitched you? That having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is absolutely not. You begin the Christian life in the spirit. You live the Christian life in the spirit. You begin the Christian life by faith. You live the Christian life by faith. Now, before we think that we can get saved, and then it doesn't matter how we live, we have to keep reading Galatians chapter 2.20. Because this new life that we live is Christ living through us. The fact that we come to Christ by faith and live by faith is no motivator for us to settle for a life of mediocre Christian growth. For us to settle into patterns of mediocrity. To simply rest on a decision that we made years ago and that we are Christ's. And it doesn't matter how I live now. That's not the implication of this at all. Because, again, if that word of God takes root in our lives... It works us over. It changes us. If we are a disciple, they will know it by the fruit that we bear. The gospel seed has genuinely been sown in our heart. It will bear fruit. It will bear fruit. But notice what Paul says here. And I think this is very interesting. Two things he's trying to tell us. One is he's trying to tell us we live by faith. We live by faith. Salvation from start to finish is a work of God. We live by faith. But then he says this. This son of God, Christ, who loved me, gave himself for me. His motivator here, I think, is gratitude. What else could be our response based on Christ's love and Christ's death? Gratitude. Now, I'll be honest with you, because my kids are uh, almost a a few thousand miles away right now. And I always get nervous. I'm gone pretty much every Reformation day, because I do these Reformation things. And I always get nervous, because my sons like to celebrate Reformation Day by going around the house and nailing things to the wall. (laughs) I gave them that idea when they were like two or three, and it was cute. When they were two or three, but now they're like six and eight, it's no longer cute. And when they do it and I get home and I see the 95 theses nailed all over the house, my wife just looks at me with that look, you did this and you are responsible for this. So I'm always nervous to what I go home to on, after Reformation weekend. And, and I can't even remember why. I'm, I know why I was telling you that story. We use gratitude sometimes 
to manipulate. We do it. Our kids aren't quite acting like we want them to act. And we say to them, I just took you to McDonald's and I just gave you a happy meal. You owe me obedience. Right? That's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. Paul is not manipulating us to some point of obedience out of some of some sense of forced gratitude. But that a natural, organic obedience that stems from a grateful heart. A Christian life lived apart from the power of the gospel and gratitude for the gospel. A Christian life lived apart from that is a life of short-term obedience and long-term frustration. I'm convinced of it. But a Christian life lived in light of the power of the gospel, living by faith, and lived out of genuine, sincere, heartfelt gratitude for what Christ has done for me. That is a life of long-term obedience and deep, deep joy. That is an enjoyable Christian life. Or to use the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, that is how we live and die happy. That as we come to grips with the Christian life as a response out of a grateful heart for what Christ has done for me. Now, again, this is no excuse to just sort of settle into the status quo. This is no excuse for some life of mediocrity. This is no excuse to not press on in disciples bearing fruit for the glory of God. In fact, it's the only key to pulling all that off. And this is what Heidelberg gives us. It looks at what is the deep human heartfelt perennial needs of comfort, security, and happiness. And it answers all of those with the gospel. And not just the gospel, the thing we come to at salvation and then we move on but the gospel that is our whole life is centered on. The gospel-centered, the cross-centered life. And that is the life of happiness, a life of joy. Now, how does it get worked out? Well, I want to take you to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This happiness that Heidelberg is talking about this joy has to be looked at differently than how it gets looked at culturally. Would, would any of you want this life for yourself? You get a brilliant start, super fast start to your career, so that by the time you're 20, you've earned your doctorate and you've published your first book. 
only to come a few years later and lose your job because you will not give allegiance to the ruling political party. And then you go and start an underground seminary that your students from which you graduate get arrested, put in prison, and some of them killed. And then this underground seminary gets shut down by the Gestapo. And then you find yourself in a room with military officers, with intelligence officers, with strategically placed people. And they come to the conclusion that the only way to stop the madman at the helm is to take him out, to assassinate him. And some of these people are your brothers-in-law and your friends and your brothers. And they're looking to you, the minister, the theologian, to somehow give them your blessing for what they're about to do. And when they finally do these attempts of assassination of this madman, they fail. All three of them fail. And then you get arrested. And you spend the last two and a half years of your life in a Nazi prison. And at the end, when the handwriting is clearly on the wall and the regime is about to fall, your death sentence is written over lunch. As Hitler has lunch, he writes out the death sentence, the death order for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is led from his prison in Berlin down to Flossenburg. And the next day he's led out onto the gallows and he's hanged. In the 39th year of his life. Now, who among us would sign up for that life? That's the life I want to live. But that's the life that Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived. And there's a lesson in that life. That when we talk about living and dying happily, it has nothing to do with nine times out of ten what we think living and dying happily means. That living and dying happily in the gospel means at times a 180 from what we think comfort and happiness is. Especially in our entitlement culture. Here's what Bonifer says about faith. I have it there for you. It's in a letter he wrote to his, one of his students in Finkenwalde at the underground seminary. It was in Germany at the time as part of the war reparations that was given to Poland, Finkenwalde. And Eberhard Betke went on to marry Dietrich Bonifer's niece while Bonifer was in prison. Bonifer wrote the sermon to be preached at the wedding, smuggled it out of prison, and it was read at the wedding of Eberhard and Renate Betke. Becky got the, Bonifer gave Becky the, the literary airship and Becky oversaw the, uh, 
the um, publication of Boniface's last writings, his letters and papers from prison. And one of those last writings of his is this letter. Another one of them is a novel. Bonfer wrote a novel while he was in prison. And the opening scene of that novel is a grandmother. The son comes to visit the grandmother, and this Lutheran church in town has a liberal pastor. And she knows it. She recognizes it. But nobody else in the church seems capable of recognizing it. And as they're leaving church and they're walking through a park, the grand, this, you can tell this is a novel written by a theologian. The grandmother asked the grandson, what did you think of the sermon? And the grandson said, oh, it was fine. It was very nice. It was very fine. And the grandmother jolts him in his step and grabs his hand harshly and looks at him sternly and says, don't ever accept a cheap imitation for the real thing. That's not the church. And Bonifer was saying that to his national church. He was saying that to the church that Luther gave birth to, that it had sold its birthright, that it had left the gospel behind. Well, read the letter along with me. He says, I remember talking to a young French pastor 13 years ago. Back in 1929-30, Dietrich Bonifer came to New York City and studied at Union Theological Seminary. And he and this French pastor and another American got an old car and drove from New York City to Mexico. They made a road trip across the country and back in 1929 with pup tents. They drive along and just... And I think it was on that trip is what this, when this conversation took place. We were discussing what our real purpose was in life. He said he'd like to become a saint. And I think it is quite likely that he did. At the time, I was very much impressed, though I disagreed with him. And I said, I should prefer to have faith, or words to that effect. For a long time, I didn't realize how far we were apart. I thought I could acquire faith by trying to live a holy life, or something like it. Later, I discovered, and I'm still discovering up to this very moment, that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to believe. One must attempt to abandon every effort to make something of oneself. That's the theology of glory. That's that human effort, human achievement thing. Whether it be a saint, a churchman, a priestly type, so-called, a righteous man or an unrighteous one, a sick man or a healthy man, this is what I mean by worldliness. Taking life in one's stride with all its duties and problems, its successes and failures, its experiences and helplessness. Peter put it this way, that in these various ways you may be grieving. Even now, these trials you may be grieving. Life's successes, its failures, its experiences, its helplessness. It is in such a life that we throw ourselves into the arms of God and participate in his sufferings in the world and watch with Christ in Gethsemane. That's faith. That's metanoia, repentance. And that is what makes a man and makes a Christian. And look at Jeremiah 45 sometime. And just look at the life of Jeremiah. No surprise to me that Bonifer was drawn to the life of Jeremiah. A prophet, 
who was thrown into prison for proclaiming the word of God. How can success make us arrogant or failure lead us astray when we participate in the sufferings of God by living in this world? We talk about this gospel-centered life. And in a church setting on a Saturday after a nice hamburger and hot dog and bratwurst, it all sounds really good, doesn't it? But then Monday comes. And life settles in. And this is precisely what Bonifer is talking about. That it's in life that this theological truth that we're talking about of the gospel is born out. It's in the ups and downs, the twists and the turns, the lives that if we had a different option, we'd likely choose it. But it is precisely in the life that we live that we learn what it is to be a disciple of Christ. This is hard. We get frustrated with God. We want to be there and we're here. We want to see this and we experience that. And it is precisely in that. Yet for now in these various trials, it is precisely in that that the gospel speaks. Happiness, here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say happiness is. Happiness is the cruciform life. Happiness is the life that recognizes the cross. Happiness is the life that recognizes that not all is glory in a theology of glory sense. We participate in the sufferings of God by living in this world. The only thing that suits us up for that kind of life is Galatians 2.20. The only thing that enables us to pull that off is Galatians 2.20. Christ living in me, And remembering that it is he who loved me and gave himself for me. But let me put this on the ground in one specific way. Because when I hear these martyrdom stories, we're talking about these great people, Luther and Huss and Bonifer, and they're martyred. What's my life compared to that? What what do I have to give to to compare to that? Let me encourage you by this. Look at the first page there. The Bonifer quote from Life Together. So this is a wonderful book. This is recalling the days at Finkenwald, that underground seminary. When it was shut down in 1937, Bonifer went home and he wrote this book, Life Together. And he talks about a chapter on ministry. And there are seven aspects of ministry that Bonifer lists. And the very first one, he says, is the ministry of listening. The ministry of listening. The first service one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Just as God, just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. If we jump down a little bit, it says that the last sentence there says, they forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking 
where they should be listening. But he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. And in the end, there is nothing left but spiritual chatter and clerical condescension arrayed in pious words. One who cannot listen long and patiently will presently be talking beside the point and never really be speaking to others, albeit he be not even conscious of it. Anyone thinks that his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet will eventually have no time for God and his brother, but only for himself and for his own follies. Do you know one way you can be a disciple of Christ is to just listen? To just listen. And what an encouragement it can be to just listen. You know, we we look at these martyrs, we look at these great lives, and we think, oh, my discipleship is just, it's nothing compared to that. Well, here's one of these martyrs. And this is what he's telling us. The first service that we owe and ministry to one another as a consequence of gratitude for what Christ has done for us is to just listen to one another, to just be an encouragement to one another. As we put all this together, I think sometimes we have the wrong metrics for the Christian life. We have sometimes the wrong motivation for the Christian life in the wrong metrics for the Christian life. The true motivation is gratitude. Proper metrics is simple, simple faithfulness. Not to the life you think God should be giving you, but to the life that God has given you. This life that you think is full of distractions and interruptions because you're constantly with other people. You know the great saying, ministry would be easy if it weren't for the people. Ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. But that's not what God gave us. He gave us people. And it is in that that the gospel is lived. That Christ lives in us. Well, let's pray together and then we'll see if you have some questions. Maybe, Father God, we just pause to think about this wonderful truth of the salvation that we have because of what Christ has done for us. We thank you for Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We are so grateful for the gospel. We ask that you would help us to live for you, to live in the power of the gospel, to live lives of gratitude, lives of service, lives of ministry to one another, even in the simple task of just listening to our brothers and sisters. And in that, may we be your faithful disciples. Pray these things in Christ's precious name. And for his sake, amen.